I'd like for you to turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. I guess you've noticed that the last three Sundays we've been working our way around in this book. The sixth chapter of Ecclesiastes. And I, I want to just encourage you to hold it open on your lap there because we're going to work at it that way today. There are um, defining moments in everybody's life where we are identified and by which we are often remembered. For Roy Regal, it was the 1929 Rose Bowl. He picked up a fumble and ran as hard as he could toward the wrong goal line. And his terrible blunder uh, led to the Winning touchdown by the opposition. That was his defining moment. Um, Ralph Branca may not be a household name to some of you, but some people never forget the pitch he threw in the bottom of the ninth in the 1951 National League playoffs. And Bobby Thompson hit that pitch over the center field wall for the most famous home run ever been hit in the history of baseball, and the Giants won the pennant. And for Chris Weber, it was the last few seconds of the 1993 NCAA championship game. And this great basketball star from the University of Michigan called timeout when his team had no more timeouts. And so a technical foul was called North Carolina got two free throws, made one, kept the ball, and won the national championship. And who can forget Dan Jensen lining up, determined to win his favorite race, the greatest skater, male skater, who ever put on a pair of skates, determined to win this race, this speed skating race, for his beloved sister, who had died the day before with leukemia. But on the last lap of that race, his skates betrayed him and he plunged against the walls and his dream came crashing down. He fell in the next race as well. That was in the 1988 Olympic Games, Winter Olympics in Calgary. Four year, years later at Albertville, he didn't even qualify. Now, I don't know what happened to Roy Regal we can only hope that he used that mistake he made, that blunder, to do something positive. But I do know what happened to Ralph Branca. He went into the locker room, took off his uniform, closed his locker, and went on with his life. He married, he had a family, raised a family. In fact, his daughter married Bobby Valentine, who was once the manager of the Texas Rangers. He became a successful businessman and he was the prime mover behind an organization called BAT, an organization for old baseball players whom he said had suffered a more permanent tragedy than just throwing the wrong pitch at the wrong moment. And Chris Weber established Time Out Inc. It's a nonprofit organization designed to help young people who have messed up their lives, take a little break and start over again. Not only could he laugh at his blunder, but he used it as a springboard to help others. And who could forget Dan Jensen? Two years later at Lillehammer, 
winning the race, skating over to the side and taking his little girl in his arms, named after her aunt who had died six years before with leukemia, and making a victory lap around that ice arena with that little girl in his arms, and then standing on the victory stand with tears pouring out of his eyes, receiving the gold medal. Life is ripe with defining moments that make or break us depending on our perspective. I'm convinced that the defining moment in Solomon who wrote this book came as he neared the end of his trail, his search for meaning in life and had not found it. And so as he came to the end of this road on which he was searching for some meaning for life, and found that there was no meaning in life for him. Vanity of vanities, all his vanity, was a defining moment in Solomon's life. And at this defining moment, he raises, he presents four unsatisfying conclusions and asks four unanswerable questions. Now these unsatisfying conclusions he presents or like some astronaut returning from space and being debriefed. And the first unsatisfying conclusion was this, that one can have all that life offers and not be satisfied. That one can have everything that life affords and still not be happy. And this is how he puts it. There is an evil which I've seen under the sun and it's prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. But God has not empowered him to eat from them for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. Now this is what he's saying. That men of power, revered, men of wealth, men of status and success have found that when they had all that life had to offer, it did not bring satisfaction to them. And he seems to be saying that we're not satisfied but by what God gives us, the gifts He gives us, but by the giver Himself. And he goes on to say that even the blessing of having many children and a long life is nothing if the soul is not satisfied. And the word he uses for soul there is the word nephesh. And it refers to the eternal part of man, the spiritual part of man. And he's saying this, that if this gnawing appetite of the nephesh is not satisfied, then one will never be satisfied. And that all that the world offers does not satisfy this gnawing appetite of the nephesh. He can have all that the world offers and not be content. Second unsatisfying conclusion is that a person can actually come to death and his death be unattended. And he talks about it like unattended by grief. And he uses this term, he could not have a proper burial. 
Now what Solomon suggest, suspects is this, that he's going to come to the end of his life and he's going to die and there's not anybody going to grieve over it. Can you imagine that? The wealthiest, most powerful man of his time, the man with the greatest education, a man with the greatest position of his time, dies and nobody cares. And he's talking about, he suspects that all of this stuff that he has acquired and that he's talking about has not endeared him to the people who, knew, to, who know him. And in Solomon's day, when a baby was stillborn, it was not given a name. In their culture, in that culture, they believed that if you didn't give a baby a name, just called it an it, then the, the parents could get over the grief of its dying quicker. And so that leads him to the third conclusion. And the third conclusion is this. Better, the man who lives and dies and nobody grieves over his death is more to be pitied than a miscarried it without a name. Everybody knows what happened to Job. Job lost everything that he had. He lost his possessions. He lost his family. He lost his health. But the amazing thing is, is that, that Job lost everything that Solomon had. And both of them arrived at the same conclusion. That it's better for a person never to breathe a breath of this world's air than to live a life that does not satisfy the self or touch other people for positive good. And better is the wake of a stillborn child that never had a name than the state funeral of a famous man when there's nobody there to grieve over him. I suppose that every preacher, if he preaches long enough, will have occasion where he will preach the funeral of a famous person, well-known, his name's a household word. At least once this happens, and there'll be just a handful of people there, not a tear found in the crowd. And I know there are a lot of times when pastors preach funerals of folks really who are not really that famous, don't have that much prestige or notoriety. And when they walk out into the pulpit, the crowd is, the, the auditorium is packed, standing room only of people, people grieving over the loss, the death of that person. And time after time, they'll come up, the family will come up and say, I just didn't realize his life, her life touched so many people. Now Solomon suspected that he would live his life and die and nobody would even grieve over it. And the conclusion he came to was, better is a person never have to have been born than to live his life and die and nobody care. And the fourth conclusion he came to is found in verse 9 and following. And that is that one can experience work without reward and one can gain wisdom without advantage. Now, this is how he puts it. What the eye see, what verse seven, all that a man is for his all that a, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. 
For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eye sees, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after the wind. What he's saying is this, that a person can have a marvelous job and he can have financial success, but that financial success doesn't bring him happiness. It feeds his mouth. It puts clothes on his back. It pays the bills, but it doesn't bring satisfaction to him. He has a marvelous job, but he hates it. I read recently of a psychologist who spent four and a half years just doing survey, surveying CEOs and presidents of large corporations, 4,000 of them, and this was his finding. Six out of ten of these CEOs and presidents of major corporations said they were miserable in their jobs, they were unhappy in their work, and they were unsatisfied with everything about their labor. Put bread on the table, he said, didn't satisfy the heart. And what advantage, he says, is it to gain wisdom for the person who, is, who has these degrees, he said, is really not, really not fulfilled when he completes them. I guess you could say that Solomon was suffering from what's called the Mick Jagger syndrome. Now, Mick Jagger was the point man of the Rolling Stones, the rock band. He's now a multi-millionaire granddad. I, I've read that the Rolling Stones, you guys who get into that stuff are making a comeback. They've done some reunion concerts. Mick Jagger was an unknown in the 60s. The Rolling Stones were unknown in the 60s. And they came out with a tune that skyrocketed them to stardom. It was called Satisfaction. And the tune goes like this. I don't get no satisfaction. Now the record says that Solomon wrote a thousand tunes, a thousand songs, at least one of them must have sounded like Mick Jagger. I get no satisfaction. Unsatisfying conclusion. He raised four unanswerable questions. Question number one, do we have any choices? He puts it like this in verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named. Now in that culture, when you name something, you defined it. You made it unalterable. And what he's saying is, is that everything is predetermined anyway. Everything is fixed and unalterable. When God created the earth, he put the sun in space and then he named it. And when he named it, he defined it and that predetermined, it made it unalterable, unchangeable. When he made the day and the night, he named them. When he made the animals, he named them. And they were defined and, and determined and unalterable. And what Solomon is saying is this. He's saying life has no choices about it. Everything's determined for us, predetermined. Everything is unalterable. We can't change anything. We can't make things different. We can't make things new. What changes can we make? What choices? Unanswerable question. And on the basis of that question, he raises the second question. What recourse do we have? Look at verse, the last part of verse 10. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. 
Now what, I, what Solomon is saying is that since God predetermines everything, do we have any recourse? Do we have any argument? Is there a basis, is there a court of appeals in this universe? Can we dispute him? A few years ago, a play opened on Broadway called Arms Too Short to Box with God. And the theme of that play was don't box with God. He's got the reach on you. He belongs in a different classification. He's a heavyweight champion of the world, and you're a flyweight in the amateur division. You get, can't get in the arena with God. You can't get in the ring with God. He'll beat you up. That's the conclusion. So what recourse do we have? What can we do about what's happening in life? There, what changes can we make? And he raises a third unanswerable question. Verse 12. For who knows what is good for man during his lifetime? The question is, who measures, what measuring stick is there of what is good and what's bad? My mother used to say to me, Gerald, eat your spinach. Eat your raisin pie. It's good for you. Well, who says? I mean, if you, if you throw up, you know, I mean, what, what good is it? I mean, if the Bible says for all things work together for good, what, what is good? Watch this. Who has the measuring stick that determines what is good and bad? Hey, that's Solomon's question. For who knows? Heard about two ladies that, two single sisters that lived together. One day one didn't come home. She, was, she disappeared. She was gone about six months and she came back and her sister said, where have you been? She said, well, I got married. She said, oh, well, that's good. Well, not all good, she said. The man I married was twice my age. She said, oh, well, that's bad. She said, well, not all bad. He was really rich. She said, well, that's good. He said, well, not all good. He left all his money to his children by first marriage. She said, oh, well, that's bad. She said, oh, not, not all bad. He did build me a beautiful house. Well, that's good. Well, not all good. It burned down. <laughs> She said, well, that's bad. She said, well, not all bad for the type what was in it when it burned. Now, how do you know, how, how, how do you know what is good? Now, so, so you got, you got somebody telling you it's good, but it's not all good. You know. And so Solomon said, what is the measuring stick? Unanswerable question. And he came to the final unanswerable question. He said, who can tell what will be after a man under the sun? In other words, what's going to happen? Who can predict the future? When I die, what's it going to be like when I leave? There's some things that you can kind of predict. You can kind of, you can kind of gauge the fluctuation of the, of the bond market. You can kind of predict the weather a little bit, but you can't predict the future. And Solomon said... Is there anybody who can tell me what the future's going to hold for me? It's like Forrest Gump. Mama says that life is like a box of candy. You never know what you're going to get. Now, what is it? Box of chocolates. <laughs> we got a Forrest Gump expert over here. Life is like a box of chocolates. Excuse me, Benjamin. Life is like a box of chocolates. 
You never know what you're going to get. True That's true. Thank you, Ben. Now, here's the question. Watch this. When you get down to the end of that road where you've sought the meaning of life and you haven't found it, what then? And when you've come to all of these doors and every one of them closes to you, this is what's happening, what then? And when you just know that this is going to bring answers and it doesn't, where do you go now? For here was a man who had all, he had done it all, he had seen it all, he tried it all, and it was vanity to him. What do you go from there? Ron Luciano, the colorful major league umpire, killed himself two weeks ago. You know what Joe Garagiola said about Ron Luciano's suicide? Amazing thing. Watch this. He said, he got to a place in his life where there were no more funny stories to tell. What if you get to the place in life where there are no more funny stories to tell and there are no answers? What do you do then? Albert Camus, the French existentialist, tells this parable about a man who was a diamond trader. And he married a woman in a little village. She was a beautiful woman and he would go to do these on these diamond trading trips. She'd stay in the village, never got out of town. One day he convinced her, he encouraged her to go with him and so she went to the city. And he had some appointments but he didn't take her with him. He gave her some money and invited her to go shopping to have a good, after, good day uh, in the city. And when he left, while she was there alone in the hotel, she remembered a sensual dream she had when she was a child. She had been haunted by this sensual dream. And she thought this will be a good opportunity to experience it, but she didn't. She wandered around the city in ambivalence until time for him to come home. And when he did, she met him at the hotel. They had a beautiful dinner and they went walking. They came in late and went to bed but she couldn't sleep. She got up out of bed and went out into the street and fulfilled her sensual dream. She came back in, showered and went to bed and began to cry. She began to sob so loudly that it woke him up and he said, what's the matter? And she said, nothing. And that's the end of the story. That's how existentialists tell their parables. Let me put a little biblical postscript to the existential parable. It's this, that when you experience, when you indulge your wildest dreams, there is no day as lonely as when you indulge your wildest dreams and come home empty. And that's where he is. He has indulged his wildest dream and he is empty and unfulfilled. What do you do? Where do you go now? Enter Job. I referred to him a while ago. He's a man who lived hundreds of years before Solomon in the little city of Uz, 20 miles southeast of the Dead Sea. He was brilliant and bright and righteous and rich. The Bible said he was the greatest man in the East. And one day he lost everything. 
His children died. His property was destroyed. And his wife cursed God. And he had all these boils. He lost his health. He was sitting on an ash heap covered with boils. When his friends came, and with friends like Job's, you don't need enemies. And they came not with answers. They came with questions. Why? And the main question was, what happened to you, what happened to you Job? Why are you like this? What have you done? And they tormented him with their questions and had no answers. But when they finally shut up, God spoke up. Now if Solomon had four unanswerable questions, Job must have had a hundred. And you might think that God would take the list of his questions and start answering them off one by one, but he didn't. He asked Job 64 of his own. He said, Job, where were you when they laid the foundation of the world? Were you there? Have you ever commanded the dawn and set the sun, the morning in its place? Have you ever said to the clouds to rain and it covered you with a blanket of rain? Have you ever set the lightning flashing across the sky saying, here I am? And you say, well, what is the point of all the questions? Here's the point. Don't miss it. God is not the one who answers questions. We do. We're not the teacher. He is. We're not the center of the universe. He is. We're not the one around whom this universe revolves. He is. And so he didn't, God didn't answer Job's questions. He asked the questions for he's not the tested. He's the tester. And he put Job to the test. Now what did Job do while God was testing him with these questions? Well, one by one by one, he began to see his place. And he listened. And he put his hand over his mouth and he said, I'm insignificant. I can't answer you. I can't talk to you. And he admitted that he was out of place. And he worshipped him, and he cried, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. For you see, in his quest for purpose, he found the person behind the purpose. And in his search for the meaning of the rhyme, the meaning of the story, he came face to face with a storyteller. And when he no longer could find any answers on this road he traveled, he looked up. And he discovered not the answer, but the one who asked the questions. Now what happens when you get like that yourself to the point in time when every door is closed to you and every road comes to a dead end and there are no more funny stories to tell? What happens to you then? Let me, what's left? Let me tell you what's left. God is left. God is left. And in Him, our faith in Him, our discovery of Him, our finding Him, we find what makes life satisfactory. To, lo to, to, to trust Him, to know Him, to love Him. That's what it means. And so St. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on where you went to college, 
or seminary. St. Augustine has this little uh, test of true love. He said, suppose God came to you today and said, I'll give you everything that the world offers. I'll give you everything world offers. I'll give you a perfect heart so that you can have what your heart desires. And I will take away sin so that you live forever. That sounds pretty good to me. Everything a world offers, a perfect heart, the desires of that heart, removal of sin, and live forever. What could be better than that? Is it one? There's only one condition. You can't see my face. And Augustine said that if there is a little quiver in your heart when you hear the term, the words, you can't see my face, perhaps you love him with a true love. And if you're willing to lay aside everything the world offers for the joy of seeing his face, then you may love him with a true love. In the morning, his face I see. In the morning, I see his face. In the evening, his form I trace. In the darkness, his voice I know. I see Jesus everywhere I go. Listen to me now and we're through. The life that has found its meaning is the life who sees Jesus everywhere he looks. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know there's so many unsatisfying conclusions about our life and so many questions that we have. Oh Lord, help us to find the answer is in the face of Jesus Christ and to love Him with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. God, I pray this for this group and for this pastor in Jesus' name. I want to help you this morning to come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If you've never placed your honest trust, childlike trust in Jesus Christ, I want you to do that right now, just like a little child, just trusting Jesus and Jesus alone and praying that prayer in your heart, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. Here is my trust. Here is the control of my life. Pray that in your heart. Maybe you need to come this morning because his face has been obliterated with all of this stuff that brings no satisfaction to the nafish. Rededication of life or to place your life in a church fellowship and the discipline of it while we stand to sing, we invite you to come.